Welcome to Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. All right, welcome to Morelia Python Radio. Tonight we are joined by Daniel Natush. Uh, he was on the show a couple times way back in the day. I remember at ICAST he was uh, talking uh, first about, uh, you know, doing some work with uh, Green Pythons. And um, now here we are with the paper all these years. How many years has it been, Daniel? It's been quite a while, right? <laughs> Did you been working on this? Yeah, it's been at least a decade in the making. Holy oh. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I guess we'll just jump right into it. I mean, maybe you can give us, uh, for people that uh, didn't listen to those past episodes, maybe give a little bit of a background on yourself, how you got into this study and, you know, kind of like the journey that you've been on to get to this point. Yeah, absolutely. I would, um, well, first, thanks for having me, guys. I, um, I found my first Green Python age 14. I was one of those lucky kids who got to spend time in places that they hang out. And I wanted every excuse I could to go back and keep on hanging out with them and catching other snakes and other reptiles and just being in beautiful places that I loved. And so I came up with the fanciful idea of becoming an academic. So I went to university and did various things, um, various degrees and masters and PhDs and so on, all working on snakes. And that's what sent me back into the bush. And I transferred that interest that I had in green pythons from the Australian population in, in Cape York. For those people that don't know, there's a small population or several small populations in Northern Australia, in Queensland. But the main stronghold for the species is in the island of New Guinea, um, which is divided politically between PNG or Papua New Guinea and uh, Indonesia, Irian Jaya or West Papua, Papua. Um, and so I went over to Papua to explore the species in more detail because, as I'm sure many of you know, there are the different locality types and there are red juvenile morphs and yellow juvenile morphs and I was interested in, in the, the evolutionary biology of the species and so went over there and uncovered a huge trade in these things. I went with my now wife, Jessica Lyons, who did a lot of work on the species also. We published a lot together, and throughout this journey, having seen a hell of a lot of animals, it does become apparent that there are some consistencies and there are some trends, um, some patterns that begin emerging with morphological traits and one's mind begins to beg the question, is there something more to this than just random morphological variation? Is there something genetically deeply inherent in these differences that we're, we're seeing? And so we set out to test that. And now I, I really have been doing that as a pet project, just as a bit of fun on the side because... A few other people were probably going to do it if I didn't, given all the time we'd we'd spent and put into it. And now I work as a, I still do the same thing, working on snakes and lizards. Um, as a consultant, I run a company that does does wildlife management type things for for CITES. I do a lot of work for CITES. Do a lot of work in Indonesia and Malaysia and all over the world, really, on on reptiles, whether it be field studies or policy or 
you know, to make trade more sustainable or humane if animals are being killed, if it's crocodiles or something. So, yeah, that's what I get to do now, which is a bit of fun. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a blast, man. <laughs> the dream yeah. job, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess, um, Mike, since we're talking about evolutionary, evolutionary biology, my question would be, um, to start this off, have you found that, you know, um, uh, Green pythons, do they fit into the Moralia world or how, how, you know, there's always that debate on whether they should be taken out of the of Moralia genus, put in a different one. What's your thoughts on that? Do you... um, to be honest, I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about questions like that. It, <laughs> right, I, I don't okay. want to sound like, a, like an arrogant dick, but it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really interest me at all. Okay. Um, but but to answer your question, I, I guess there are rules in taxonomy. I, I I should explain to whoever is going to listen to this or is listening to this that I'm not a taxonomist. I'm just I'm a I'm a biologist, an ecologist, a field biologist, who having spent a lot of time in the field working with particular animals, has been able to observe things and. Um, make conclusions, draw observations about how things might might actually be. So all the rules of taxonomy and all the, you know, the fighting that happens is not really my cup of tea. But to answer your question, from what I understand, whichever when whichever species was named Morelia first, that will be the species that holds that genus name Morelia. And as I understand, it was probably the carpet python. Okay. Um, and so carpet pythons are Morelia. And so a recent study has found that, as you know, what used to be an amethystine python or an Oempeli python or a tanimbar or something like that, Boland's pythons have been um, taken out of Morelia and are now Somalia, their own genus, because yep. they're... That study's found that they're not actually as closely related to carpet pythons as previously thought. Now, um, now, green pythons, as I understand, again, together with rough-scale pythons, and it's important to note that the rough-scale python is their closest genetic relative based on the, the gene data we have available, the molecular data, um, that they, to my understanding, are nestled within Morelia, um, because they are closely related to the carpet pythons. And so, again, as I understand, simply by the rules of the way names work, and these are all human constructs, there's no this means that in terms of this is an ultimate truth of how the world is. It's just that we have a classification system like we do with everything. There are certain rules of the game, and the rules of the game dictate that at this stage, unless some drastic data become available to suggest otherwise, that chondropython is no more. Sorry to all those diehard fans. <laughs> and Morelia is, is what we have. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know the, the taxonomy thing is like one of those things that people, you know, seem to like uh, always focus on, but it's really... I don't know. I just kind of think it's our way of putting an animal in a box, you know, like it's, yeah. Uh, it, 
does it really mean that much? Does it change the animal at the end of the day? You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, it's 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 a tricky one. I think I think I have an interest. People are probably thinking, then why did you write a paper on taxonomy? Where, <laughs> but, um, you don't even like. But uh, and the and the reason is I have a lot more interest in the specific, as in the species level taxonomy. When you start getting looking into families and genus and so on, it's that's getting a bit up in the clouds and above my pay grade, I think. And so, um, yeah, looking at those very real differences between species can be interesting. And I think right. uncovering some sort of, you know, this this notion of cryptic diversity, which we certainly have in green pythons, right. is to us, right. you know, they're all just green snakes, right? right. They do the right. same thing. They, sit, they even interbreed. You can breed a Brazeria to a Viridus and get viable offspring. And so... Are they really different species? But based on the molecular data, we know that, holy crap, they very much are, if we're using current species concepts, and perhaps we'll get onto that a bit later. But um, they are different species. And if, if we're talking from a conservation perspective, then, then part of the goal of conservation is to conserve genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. And so if that is one's goal, then you wouldn't want to say, for example, impose a management system that cut down all the forests and killed all the snakes that just happened to be in the sites where one species occurred and not the other, thinking that, oh, I conserved half of them, so I'm allowed to chop down the rest of those forests, when in actual fact, you'd chop down the forest that were the stronghold for that very separate species, and you'd wipe that genetic diversity off the earth. At the end of the day, do we really care? I mean, lots of animals are going extinct. That's a philosophical question for someone else. But that is the sort of premise to why why taxonomy can be important. Gotcha. Okay. What are, what are the chances of the, the local governments taking it that far and actually following through and, and putting those protections in place? Um, well, I, I think the reality is that uh, that it's habitat loss that will impact the species. It's not trade. So so animals don't need... These green pythons don't need to be protected per se. The problem with with green python harvesting currently is that Morelia viridis, the, the monotypic taxon, which was a monotypic taxon, like a single taxon beforehand, is protected under Indonesian legislation. Protected species can't be taken from the wild, but they can be exported from captive breeding facilities if they're captive bred. And so what this change, this taxonomic change will do, is um, it will mean that Azuria, Morelia Azuria, and all of the subspecies of Azuria can be openly collected and traded from the wild without that requirement because those new taxa are not listed specifically as under Indonesian protection legislation, um, which really is. And in my opinion, that's a good thing because it's going to address some of these laundering issues. And the reality is harvesting for pet trade is not, not doing jack from, to most, most populations of these species. You know, we could have a, a chat about the BIAC population, but even then it's, you know, who, I don't think it's a, a huge immediate concern in the face of other threatening processes like like habitat loss. So in general, and I don't want 
don't want it to sound like we did this taxonomic revision just to get that result so that people could legally trade wild pythons, but it does yeah. help help the situation. And I think, based on my understanding of how difficult it is to change Indonesian legislation, it's actually, I think they're quite pleased with the change because they know that this is an issue, but it's just such a nightmare, the bureaucracy, to get that species and politically um, you know, removing species from a protected species list where it's been there for, you know, 20 years can be quite challenging. And so this actually addresses much of that problem just in a different a different way. Sure. Well, yeah, and I mean, think about how many times uh, this has, you know, worked in the favor of a species when all of a sudden the locals and people can put a value on it instead of, you know, trying to make money doing palm oil plantations or deforestation, they now have a vested interest to keep those forests intact so they can go harvest these animals and, and then, you know, work towards that level of sustainability and make their living that way, and then everybody wins. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I would like to see some sort of, you know, I'd like to champion it. I just don't have any time, but, it, you know, got you, sure. you guys, guys like you in your industry could come up with some, you know, system or governance structure where you paid an extra two bucks for a locality specific snake and you knew exactly you got a gps coordinate to show because you can now get your kofi owls legally from the wild once this taxonomy is adopted by the indonesians um and cites you can now get your bx or your Padaido island or your random little river on the north coast of new guinea you can you can get that legally with accompanying locality data if there's a bit of a levy that's being paid for it and and those funds could go back to local people and that's how you know sustainable utilization conservation through sustainable use strategies sort of come about and so I think there's a, there's an opportunity here if someone is willing to take it forward and to do the right thing. Yeah, would, absolutely. I would think that would make a. a, a, a very different in the hobby because you would know that you're getting a wild caught animal. Um, you know that you're dealing with that from the gate, you know, as opposed to wild caught animals that are being sold as, you know, farm raised or. You, know. you, you say you said it perfectly. I mean, I think that's half the problem. Green pythons have this reputation for being these difficult to keep animals. I'm sort of sitting there going, really? And, and in fairness, maybe, maybe, maybe they are when you have to keep them in a box and in New York State where it gets minus 20 and, you know, I, I understand conditions are different, but um, they shouldn't be that hard. And so what I assume, I have no data to back this up, but what I assume is happening is that people have been getting these parasite-ridden animals, which is not necessarily a problem, but if they are under stress because they've just travelled halfway around the world and now they've been put into a box under conditions that probably are not optimal because it's difficult to know what these animals need in terms of optimal conditions. Um, they're under enormous amounts of stress. And so those parasites that weren't necessarily an issue for them in the wild, that's when they really start to have an effect. And if you're not treating those parasites because you think you've got a healthy captive breed animal, then that's why your animals are dying. And I said this, said this on another interview recently, but... It astounds me still the number of wild caught green pythons I see on Facebook pages. <laughs> just, you know, the Marilia Veritas forum on Facebook. It's more than 50% of that stuff is wild. 
you can just tell them. I'm sure you guys can tell instantly sure. as well. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why too. Like even I mean now that in Australia, even now that they're becoming uh, the, the reptile hobby is becoming bigger and bigger. That that you would think that they would export as well and put that money back into conservation. Similar similar thing here, but. I guess I don't know. It's a pipe dream. Me and me and Riley would love, you know, GPS coordinate carpet python somewhere all day. <laughs> you know, oh, and and you and you'd probably be willing to pay an extra, you know, a yes. couple of hundred bucks, bucks to do it. You know? Yes, sure. absolutely. This is like stamp collecting. It's, it's yeah. You got your penny black and your penny brown, and those things are worth you know, hundreds of thousands. Um, not saying that that's how this would become, but yeah, I think there are some. There's a lot of dogma and old school beliefs, particularly in Australia, and a few individuals in high places that that influence government. And you know, it's tricky to to have pragmatic and appropriate solutions to things that should just not be an issue. Yeah, I mean, the- even even stuff like cockatoos, like a, a stupid, not a stupid, sorry, a beautiful, <laughs> a beautiful. So, I say stupid because they're everywhere and they're annoying. Yeah, but yes. <laughs> a sulfur-crested cockatoo. You know, some poor German bastard gets caught with a couple of eggs in his underpants as he's trying to walk through customs, and we spend five hundred thousand dollars of taxpayer money trying to prosecute the poor guy yeah. and send him off back to Germany with a slap on the hand and an enormous fine, or perhaps even jail time. Yet at the same time, the state of Victoria has a pest eradication program where we shoot about 40,000 cockatoos every year. And you kind of sit there and you go, so what What was the conservation benefit of that? Like, I get it's the law and everything. You have to uphold the law, but, God, it would be nice if we had a few more uh, rational heads floating around in our, in our government echelons. Yeah, because, I mean, those things, whether we're talking green pythons or carpet pythons or cockatoos, they end up outside of Australia and Papua New Guinea anyway, eventually, you know, so. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, (laughs) yeah, we a little bit of a (laughs) shift of gears there for a second. Um, I was going to say, before we dive into the paper, with you being all around Papua New Guinea, uh, as far as the green python habitat, have you noticed any differences between, you know, uh, either the east co- the east side of the island or the west side of the island? You know, anything that, that stood out? I mean, there are... There are noticeable differences in, in, in what looks like a homogenous or a, a standard rainforest habitat in lots of places you go. I mean, you can walk. If you're walking down the creek line, it's very different to if you're walking on the top of the ridge. Um, but green pythons can be found all through there. While they are, I would call them closed forest obligate species. Even in, even in Australia where I've spent spent a lot of time just you know sitting in one spot and understanding individual populations really well these things are moving and spending time and hunting in quite open like dry woodland areas as well it's not even wet rainforest as long as there's some sort of closed canopy um then and i think perhaps it's the juveniles that are more so the limiting factor the juveniles probably need more of that dense vine thicket type stuff that we think about when we think of a, of a tropical rainforest. Um, but within that broad, 
that broad habitat type of closed forest, of tropical closed forest, they are actually quite generalist, if that makes sense. So I don't see see anything that would preclude them in terms of habitat from being in one area or over another. Okay. Okay. The the, the habitat, to answer your question, the habitats are are incredibly diverse, but green pythons are all through them. If their habitats are that diverse and we've got species across these different regions that sort of fill fill the same niche, are they feeding on the same thing? Like, is the prey the same or is the prey also as diverse as the habitat? You know, you spend a bit of a lot of time learning about niche theory and exclusion and, you know, you hear that no two species can occupy the same ecological niche. I'm, I'm, I'm less convinced that you get a huge competitor exclusion effect happening, it's particularly with snakes. That you know, a snake only needs to eat once a month, or a big python can go a year and a half without eating and not lose any condition sure, in the wild. Sure. And so, to suggest that oh, that one ate the rat and I didn't get the rat, and now that's going to screw me up, I'm not a huge believer in that. But yeah, you, you get. If you're talking about the green python taxa, perhaps we can speak about it later, but in terms of other species more broadly, there are just just so many rodent munches. Take rodents, for example. So many things munching on rodents out there in various habitats that to suggest that one or another is 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 out competing to the to the exclusion of say a green python, I don't I don't think is fully Yeah, I don't no. Is the answer. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. But then again, they most of the species do have a fairly uh, a fairly defined niche. That again, to to our non-snake eye, looks very similar. Like we all think a green python is basically a green python, but when you get down to the details, perhaps that they know something we don't, and that they are, you know, just occupying a different niche, even if it's coming out 10 minutes earlier than the other one. You know, I don't, I'm really not sure. Oh, I still, I just, I can't get my head around the, um, just the neonatal color variation across the different different localities and species as well. It's just interesting. You know, we hear about the, the theories of them, um, you know, using different parts of their habitat and therefore the color benefits them when they're up in the canopies versus down where it's a little more colorful, but it always just blows my mind how they've, you know, sort of figured out that like the best chance for success in this area is to be screaming yellow. And then in this area you have just as good of a chance in red or yellow. And I don't know, it's just a crazy ontogenetic color change in the species. And I've always been fascinated as to the function of that. So, um, I was just kind of head there. I think that is what interests me most about the species is, you know, that's what interests most hobbyists, I assume, is those remarkable colours. And um, I just, my only comment would be how they figure it out, like everything in evolution, over a bloody long time with a lot of snakes dying because of small little differences in their genetic makeup that, that manifest in their phenotypal morphology that means they're slightly better, even if it's 1% better, when you add up one percent over a, you know thousands of generations, that's how you get some of these mutations proliferating, and that's basically how it would have, would have happened. There'll be there'll be selective advantage somewhere. 
and, and we think we know what it is, but I suspect things, you know, like we haven't looked at, haven't looked at the thermoregulatory capacity of the different colours, and I think there's probably something to do with mm. uh, how quick these animals heat up. If you, I've got a friend who's, I shouldn't poach his theories, we've been sort of working on it together and he's been doing a bit more than I have. Really experienced keeper called Kieran Ayland in Australia and has a bit of of a a theory that um, the rate of heating actually influences the colour as well. And because green heats up far more quickly than does yellow and red, that these animals, because they need to hunt in sun-dappled, in sun-drenched areas for small lizards, they don't want to heat up too rapidly in the sun, and so that's why they also have these colours, which are also linked to camouflage. But how, anyway, how you how you tease all this apart and say what is more important than the other? Is it thermoregulation? Is it camouflage? It's, uh, it's difficult to tell. Wow. <laughs> Wrap your brain, your brain around that one. Wow, that's pretty interesting. That's yeah. insane. That's so cool. <laughs> um, all right. So as far as the paper goes, uh, maybe you can just give us uh, how you broke it, broke them out uh, as far as species and subspecies. Um, so as, as most of you knew, based on the work of Leslie Rawlings and Steve Denellen, who Steve's a co-author on this paper too, we knew there was very likely to be two species, one being Viridus in the south, roughly in the south, and one being Azuria in the north. And some others went ahead and just tried to describe them as full species, again, you know, without the good data. Even the authors themselves had said, um, the authors of the previous genetic work said we were reluctant to um, designate Azuria to be a full species. We don't have all the data. Nevertheless, folk like to jump the gun and they went ahead and and did it. That's cool. And so we knew we had, we were looking at two species. But then when we did the, um, we did the molecular work, and I should say that the molecular data that has been used is pretty uh, impressive. So genetic techniques get better and better every year, and we had uh, access to next-generation sequencing. So unlike most studies that sequence, um, you know, one, one gene, one mitochondrial gene, um, and maybe one nuclear gene, we've sequenced the entire mitochondrial genome, and we've uh, sequenced about 400 nuclear loci. So um, it's a really, really powerful data set and, and incredibly difficult to argue with when the final results get get punched out and you analyse them, basically we just become messengers. So you go, oh, here's the data. The program tells you how genetically related they are and how it all sits up, which you can see in these trees in the paper, if you've got it in front of you. And um, we're basically just saying, huh, that's cool. And that's that's how we, how we spin it. And as you can see, there are... Um, deep genetic divergences between the different taxa. And the next step is to obviously see, is there any concordance, is there any correlation um, with the differences in morphology? And so we'd already had a good understanding of what some of the differences were. And when we put the um, 
you know, there's a lot of background, but you test a bunch of hypotheses using different models and so on. It's a bit nerdy and dry. But um, when you look at the four taxa that we have and you separate the samples you have into those four groups and then you analyse the morphological data and the morphological data also strongly suggests um, that we that we have at least three taxa. Um, and you can see this in figure something or other, figure four of the, um, of the paper, those taxa viridus being pulcher and being what would be azuria, azuria and azuria utarensis lumped in together. But then obviously when you add it to the, to the DNA, um, yeah, there's, there's just unequivocal support for four taxa. But the reason we didn't uplist them as um, as full species is basically because, I mean, inherently, I'm I'm a what how do you say I'm a, a, a lumper and not a okay. splitter. You know, you hear that hear that yeah just, yeah like lumpers split. and splitters yeah yeah you split something into a million different things and you get your name on a whole bunch of species that are just like. You know, because your mum looks different to your brother, she's a different species to your dad. <laughs> it's just a load of, load of crap in my opinion, but it is my opinion. Um, and so because we didn't have, there are question marks you can see here on figure one, the sure. map of the samples. A couple of question marks, unfortunately, right in the areas where, um, where pulcher, the Vogel cop or the, the Western taxa and Utaraensis um, are meeting. And because we didn't have samples from there, we weren't able to test whether maybe those two taxa are interbreeding at the zone of contact. Mm. And because we don't know that, we were reluctant to uplist them. We were just being conservative, basically, and saying conservatively we're going to say that these are subspecies and not full species. So all that anyone needs to do is go back and do the work, and if there is indeed interbreeding, that's fine. There's still subspecies. There's easily enough genetic differentiation and, and morphological difference to show that they're subspecies. Um, but if they go back and they find actually no, there is no interbreeding or no evidence of introgression or interbreeding whatsoever, then then, yeah, they'll just uplist them to full species. But we, we left that to some other enterprising bugger who has to <laughs> jump into those swamps and go get a few samples and test it. The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is it similar? Is it safe to say that this would be similar to what you see with carpet pythons on the east coast of Australia, like all those zones where they're interbreeding? No, the, the carpets are far, far more closely related than any of these green python tacks. So these green python tacks are a fairly um, genetically divergent, actually. Gotcha. Okay. Um, it's just, that, again, it sort of relates back to what's your species concept. And if you sure. have, if you have, for example, we know that you can go zones of contact. There's one... If you're looking at the same map, you've got this vicinity of Okapa, you've got the Wagi River Valley, the Boase River, 
right. um, near Camp Kamayali down there on the Papua New Guinea side, where between 20, between 10 actually, 10 and 20 kilometers over an area that small, you can go from finding Viridus type animals to finding Azuria. And wow. so obviously you would assume that it's continuous habitat so that those animals are um, are occurring together. But the fact that they don't show in our in our data any mixing of genetic material, um, and there, there's a now there's a there's a weird thing over there where they do have long tails. The viridus have long tails, a bit like the northern animals, but in general, otherwise, they don't have any traits that that um that would suggest that they're Azuria, which just shows that they're not interbreeding. Um, and so that's essentially what you would want to find out for the for the zone of contact wherever it is. Right. Um, between Pulcher in the blue and Utariensis in the yellow. And that's a, that's a zone of 300 kilometres or so between samples. And so it's a little bit more challenging to, to find out exactly where that, that may be. Hmm. Wow. So in, terms of, in terms of carpets, I mean, yeah, carpet pythons are pretty, pretty closely related despite the, the very clear morphological differences. Now, the morphology... Of carpets is is far more divergent, despite them being genetically really closely related, than say green pythons, whose morphology is really conservative, really consistent. They all kind of look the same, but when you right. dig in dig into the genes, it's you know they're actually very very different. Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. Whew. All right. That's wild. Uh, <laughs> am, I, am I nerding you out? Am I you with my head? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's great. I love it. It's just that, you know, it, it's, I just find it fascinating to, to, to talk to somebody that's actually been in, in the, in the field there and, you know, I've seen, mm. I've seen these things. Um, you're, yeah. you're surprised I'm going to let you escape today with you out getting a bit of story on how you found your own pallet uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah anyway, I, I, you... Sorry, go on. That, no, I was going to say, yeah, that uh, that's quite a story, man. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, so we'll save it to the end. We'll talk okay. about these boring green things first, and then we'll talk about that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I wonder if we'll – do you think we'll see any of this type of, like – Obviously, it'll take someone going out there and digging into it. But do you think we'll see any of like this sort of divvying up and splitting uh, further with some of the uh, the Papuan carpets out there, or no? So I, <laughs> when I was in Papua, I collected everything, and so yeah, I aim to do this. But one thing is, you know, there's a guy Raymond Hosey. You may or may not have heard of him. Um, <laughs> But who's that guy? I've never heard know, of him. Who? <laughs> so, so he's named the the Papuan carpets Harrison Isles or something. Right. And yeah. I've also spent a lot of time, that's where I've spent most of my time, at the very tip of Cape York there. Um, so if you look at the map, that's a little bit of Australia, right at the tip. Um, and I've, you know, for my PhD, I caught thousands of snakes. I did it on scrub pythons and carpets and all sorts at the tip. And so I've collected a lot of data on carpet pythons. 
I also collected a lot of data on carpet pythons in southern New Guinea and have been to all the museums around the world and collected the data from them. So when I find the time, which could be in the, another decade, um, <laughs> I, I, I will synthesize that into maybe a really small little paper or perhaps team up with, I know Steve and Alan and those boys are, are doing more genetic work on the, oh no, I'm lying to you, I've actually sent, send all the samples to Steve. This is how, how with it I am. Apologies. <laughs> yeah, so we're doing that, and I'll have to synthesise the morphological stuff. Actually, we already have some results. Um, and no, the the New, New Guinea carpets are just basically, basically identical to the okay. things that are Cape York. Yeah, that, that was a long story with it. I am... Um, had to had to realize in my own mind that I already knew the answer to forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Oh, okay. Um, just on a side note, since you said that you collect in snakes, I'm curious. Did you ever come across a actual Poplin python? Yeah, quite a few. I mean, maybe ten. <sighs> ten. Oh, wow. 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 What's that yeah. like? <laughs> I know. Um, they're. Yeah, I mean they're. They're, they're pretty cool. I don't. I didn't think they were the coolest snake in New Guinea. I was pretty hooked on greens at the time. Remember, so I was a bit biased. Sure. But I'm sure. Right. Yeah. No, they were. I'm sorry. I'm lying to you. I only found two in the wild. I found one on Biak. I found one in Manukwari, and I found one. When I say, I'm saying general areas. Um, and near Sarong. Um, all the traders, the rest I saw were with local hunters, um, so I didn't see 10. Um, and they, they, a lot of people say they like the drier country, right. which, is, which is, makes sense for an olive python, right? But I don't think they're really, they're really a, 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 like, akin to the Australian olives. But they, they don't occur down in, like, Milwaukee in that dry belt where you don't have any rainforest. But up near Jayapura and around Lake Sintani, there's lots of dry open areas, and all the all the traders used to say, "Oh, you got to go to Sintani to see lots of them." But I um I saw one in a village. The other was crossing the road at night. You know, pretty standard standard sure. stuff. They were they were nice. One was big. One was three and a half, almost. Well, I didn't measure it, but probably three and a half meters long. Nice. Wow. Mm. Very, very cool species, yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> um, Love those. Definitely not the colors of a green python, that's for sure. You know, I, I'll give you that. But uh, definitely a very interesting python as far as, you know, its head structure and color change and all kinds of crazy stuff, at least in captivity, you know. Uh, absolutely. And, yeah, not well known at all. Yeah. 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 They're mysterious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is another potential study for someone. It never ends. Especially in that area, there hasn't been a whole lot of real studies of the wildlife. Is that is that accurate? I mean, uh, in in Papua New Guinea, there's been a little bit because there's been investment um, from sort of European uh, scientific institutions. But okay. typically, it's because it's such a rich landscape. It's been focused a lot on the taxonomy and less on the ecology. The stuff, the sort of stuff I'm interested in, and I imagine a lot of you guys are interested in. Not not what is the animal, but what are the animals doing on a day to day. Um, 
And so that's the sort of thing that interests me, and the answer is no. Typically, yeah, it's, it's very, it depends what, who the funders are. And I know the Indonesians are increasingly doing work in Papua, but obviously politically it's, you know, it's a bit of a minefield, um, no pun intended. And, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and so most of the work I know they do there is, is taxonomic work. But they are increasingly doing it, and perhaps I'm not giving them the benefit of hard work done just because it's published in Indonesian or something and not in a, in a Western journal. But, but, but I also have contacts with most of those guys, and they're not doing a lot of that pure sort of long-term ecological stuff like you might read Rick Shine doing at Fog Dam or that I did for my PhD where you just, you're tracking a damn scrub python for three years or something like that. It's typically much more logistically challenging to do it in a landscape like that where you've got all these other political and you know, concerns for safety and all sorts of stuff going on. I'm just thinking about how how dangerous it is, like after reading Ari's book and just like the the terrain and the climate, and then you just bring up the uh, the layer of the political government. Yeah, like what if you're out there and somebody sees you, you know, picking up snakes and and just measuring them, you know, nothing harmful, and they take it the wrong way. I mean, that can really halt the halt the project and put you in a, in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's um. Yeah, especially something like a Bolan's python, which has a totemic value to people. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's all part and parcel. I, I, I look back now. I mean, I, I, they say you get killed for three things in New Guinea. Money, uh, a gun, guns, and girls. Uh, and, and when we were there, I had money and a girl. We just had my, my wife, Jess, on the back of a motorbike and we'd just piss off into the hills on our motorbike, up little dirt tracks. And the number of times we got stopped and had to, luckily we speak Indonesian so we could talk our way out of certain situations and things. But I'm a dad now. And you know when you become a bit more uh, uh, responsible as a parent, you look sure. back and you go, there is just no way. <laughs> I had a death wish. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. Did you have to um, obtain any like local government permits or anything like that? Like make peace with you know local governors or anything like that in order to go do your studies out there? Absolutely. There's a whole a whole process. There's lots of stuff to do, and you need to meet with every little local office and the police, and you have all these you know, Surat Jalan, which is a special Indonesian thing that you got to go and get this stamp from this office and this stamp from that office. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a process. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we, we've talked about wanting to go there, but, uh, you know, just to see uh, carpet pythons, but everybody pretty much says, don't, <laughs> don't go there. Uh, no, no, I, I shouldn't, um, it's really not that bad. No, I, sorry. I, some of the stuff we did because it was so remote. Because remember, I was we were also interested in seeing the country, and mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, and but it, you can go to certain areas where it is absolutely safe. I mean, Biak Island, you, you, you're incredibly unlucky if you're going to get into strife. Most of the Raja Ampat and Sarong area, fine. Manakwari. If you want to go see carpets in Meraki. Um, that's that's easy. 
I think you can. I think you can even get a direct flight from Jakarta these days to Morocco, or maybe one yeah. stop. Um, and yeah, there are there's just there are hotels, and it'll be a bit difficult because you don't speak the language. But you just find someone who speaks a bit of English and pay them as a guide. And you need time, is the thing, because if you don't know exactly what you're doing, right. it'd be hard be hard to track stuff down. We're, learning the language helped us immensely. Um, but you know, you can engage with locals there. You can take you out. You can just scan the roads and do your thing. I mean, it's not it's not insurmountable. It, it's right. an adventure. If you're looking for adventure and you That's don't really care, don't really care whether you find one snake or ten snakes or ten or zero snakes, right. then you know you, you haven't lost. Okay. You'll have an adventure, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. Good to know. All right. Just put Rob the Pitbull on the case, and he'll handle it. You just make sure good. your passports are in order, you got money to go, and you get give yourself some time to, to buff up on the language and let Rob lead the way. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Um, okay, all right. Let's, uh, I guess, steer back to uh, Green Trees. Um the one thing I'm looking at on the map here is obviously there's that um, the elevated mountain range section. Do the they just don't go up to a certain altitude, or is it just too dense, or they just don't occur in those regions, and that acts as a, a natural north-south barrier, right? Yeah, so that's basically the 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 isolating mechanism that created those two species, the north and south. Sure. And some of it's you know, covered in snow and glaciers and high mountain peaks. Um, so that's obviously a bit of a challenge for a green python to crawl over. Um, but this is a, a fairly broad approximation. This is, I'm talking, these are the places I've been, this is what I know it looks like. I've spent freaking ages just scouring over topographic maps and getting an idea of, you know, precisely where something may occur or where it may not. Um, keeping in mind that the valleys, the highland valleys, um, are typically filled with rainforest or just a, a montane type of rainforest like you see from, say, Carl Swidak's book in the Wagi River Valley there. And greens do penetrate up those valleys. And that's where you have them. You know, you might have a river valley coming in from the north and a river valley coming in from the south. You've got Viridus coming up the southern valley. You've got Azuria coming up the northern valley, and then they meet in a highland valley at the top, and that's where you have some of these zones of contact between the two species. Right. Now, that's, that's why, for example, Carl Swidak, you know, talked about all the highland animals have white stripes. I don't know if you, you picked that up in his book. Yeah. Um, and all the lowland ones don't. And that's basically because he hadn't travelled much in New Guinea and all his time spent in the area of Viridus distribution was in the highlands near Nondagul and the Wagi River Valley. Then he dropped over the, the north side, north catchment of the Jimmy River Basin and started hanging out with Azuria. And so he'd already noticed, he just attributed it to elevation because I guess he didn't have that that broader geographic understanding of, of, of the species. So then what were you finding as the, the physical barriers between, um, you know, the subspecies and, and some of the, the east-west divisions? Um, no idea. 
that's one that's, of the big, big that's questions. That's the, yeah. the keep going, the next chapter in the research on. Exactly. You know, the thought is it's a big river or it's it's a mountain range, but if in the area of that question mark between, if you're looking at the map, between yellow point 13 mm-hmm. um, and uh, blue point 19, mm-hmm. there's really nothing to, to suggest that there is an existing. It may be the case that there was millions of years ago, and that's what's always difficult to tease apart. But currently, there's nothing obvious to our eye that would would separate a species. Um, Just like there is not, on the southern flank, there's another question mark just down from the 26, that's around Timica, and then you go down to 24 in the green, you've got that question mark. Um, What's the barrier that was separating um, Viridus and Azuria Pulcher? at that point. I mean, there are some big rivers through there, but, you know, it's pretty... Things managed to raft over from northern New Guinea into Biak. And so if they can do that, then crossing a 100-metre river is not really an issue. Um, and so, yeah, you, you need to ask, what are the what are the isolating mechanisms? And we don't know. Is there any... Um, <clears throat> I mean, if you look at... Uh, uh, Green pythons from Aru as opposed to Biak. Is there size differences uh, with all the different localities that you've come across? Um, yeah, de- definitely. Well, it depends whether you're talking averages or whether you're talking maximum size. Those Biak animals are the largest. I think I can say that fairly unequivocally. Okay. The animals from Aru and um, well, we'll say all of Viridus. All of Viridus, except the Australian population, do seem to be the next biggest after um, after Biak. In okay. general, although you get some reasonably large specimens, Utaraensis and Pulcher um, just didn't have those maximum-sized animals and their averages were lower. Um, and then you get the Australian population where you have a really large sample and none of the animals came close to being even the average of some other populations. And so, you know, you can, you can unequivocally say, yes, Australia has much smaller animals than, well, not much smaller, I mean, we're talking five centimetres or ten centimetres here or there. Right. Um, and so they have smaller animals, whereas Biak has larger, the rest of them, yeah, there's variation and it might just be small samples and a biased distribution of representativeness that meant, you know, for some of the other other populations that we said some were larger than others, but, but certainly, you know, BIAC in Australia are larger and smaller, respectively. Sorry, Riley, did you have something? Um, no. not, not quite yet. I was still sort of, like, deciphering my thoughts here. I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm just absorbing it all and then right. like processing it. It's just fascinating because there's just a ton of stuff to sort of go through and i'm just yeah my mind is all over the place it's just race it's crazy to think about like how vast and unexplored some of those regions are and i was just looking it up on google maps to see like what stands out in those regions and there's just nothing it's just (laughs) crazy to think that like it just has not been explored in detail like that and that there's more to come Yeah. yeah 
With these studies, have you have you um, been able to find more information about like exactly what uh, green python is doing? Um, you know, there's lots of thoughts of they come down at night, they go up during during the day. Is is that accurate, or has that changed? Does no, absolutely. I don't know how much you guys know, but I mean, most of the stuff that's been written well, depends how much you know, I guess. Um, right. Yeah, it's it's fairly fairly standard. I mean, through these studies, you, you, you're continuously learning, or you're at least adding and and giving confidence to conclusions that you, you know, or observations that you are making, and conclusions that you are drawing from those observations. Um, really, a lot of the understanding how the animals live is is happened from my time on Biak. I spent a lot of time on Biak and in Australia. But the broad sort of going around New Guinea, you know, you're catching you know, one, one animal here or one animal there or you're talking to, to local collectors. Remember, a lot of these samples would be from local hunters. So I would go out and, you know, one night and the hunter would go in a different direction and he'd come back with a snake, um, you know, and so I didn't even see what it, what it was doing. And so just because um, there's, there's some very large samples in the work doesn't mean I... I captured every one of those animals myself, and so yeah, I mean you, you, you're building up, building up those images and those understandings constantly. But there were no, no great revelations just because we had the, just from all our time in Australia, had the um, had the ecology fairly down pat as much as you can without doing, you know, intense radio telemetry studies or anything like that. So you guys weren't quite like catching animals and putting transponders on them. You were just going out basically herping at night, different times of the year, different regions, seeing what you see and finding, you know, what you can. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right. No. So we weren't doing to do a, a telemetry study. You need, you need to take years um, to figure out seasons and how things change over, over time and, and so on. Our movement patterns change over time. Um, and we just didn't have that time to invest in any one location in New Guinea because it, it wasn't the goal. The goal was to go around and understand the variation in the species and technically to do that, um, if it's genetic, you only need one sample from each spot. The reality is hundreds of samples from some spots, but um, the goal wasn't to, to you know, do any long-term field studies or ecological studies. I've done I've done more, more of that in Australia. So you were, you know, basically just grabbing as many as you can from all these different areas. You know, what was like a, an average night um, during some of your trips over there searching for for the snakes at night? Like, what were some of the more memorable evenings catching and finding these animals? Oh, I mean, your average night is no snakes, um, yeah. <laughs> as I'm sure you're well aware. But um. No, that might not be true. Maybe your average night is one snake. It's just there's just there's so many variables. I mean, it depends what sort of habitat you're in. Is it secondary forest? Is it primary forest? How close to human settlement is it? Has it been heavily harvested? Um, all these things are going to play into your encounter rates. So you might say you know one one snake a night on average. But yeah, I've had nights where I've caught twelve greens in a night. Um, I've yeah, just yeah, lots lots of stuff. Um, yeah, finding juveniles and hanging, you know, 
crawling around under ferns and things during the day and finding little juveniles. And we did a bit of work putting big enclosures into the forest and then and then putting different juvenile morphs inside them and just seeing where they hung out. And again, you know, I know this this won't mean anything to you, but but pretty much as you'd expect is the answer. And and it's like my PhD, I studied scrub pythons, the amethystine python, and um, that's where I did more intense ecological studies. You know, caught six hundred or something specimens and wow. radio tracked like thirty animals for two years, and you you. You finish a big radio telemetry study, like wow! I just spend a huge amount of my time busting my ass at night, <laughs> walking for miles just to find out that the signal was actually coming from the other direction. And for one data point, it's like, oh, so it hasn't moved for the last month. Okay, fine. I'll go home and track another one or something. You know, it's. it's so, and then the general conclusion is pretty much in the city. Oh yeah, pretty much as I expected. If you spend a lot of time in the bush with snakes and you know these animals, then it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not learning a lot myself. It's very nice to be able to get large data sets, quantify it, analyze it, and then report it so that the general human population can be like, oh, that's, this is what they're doing, and they can use it to inform the decision-making or just for their own interest. But if you've spent a lot of time in these sorts of places anyway, then at least in my experience, and I don't want to discount, say, radio telemetry or anything, but I did find myself a little bit thinking, huh, there's an enormous amount of investment and effort in this project, and I, I, this is basically what I thought the snakes would be doing, you know, based, based, on, everything, <laughs> based on everything you know and you've read, and you're like, ah, oh, it wasn't quite as exciting. <laughs> So were you finding these animals mostly stationary um, or did you ever find any on the go? Because in the hobby, we, you know, people commonly refer to them as, you know, snakes on a stick. They don't do anything. We kind of have this sort of cookie cutter approach to keeping them in these, you know, cubes and make them feel covered. And they come out at night and they don't really do much. And that's that. But, um, you know, Dan Maleri had a video where he found one on a rock and, you know, one hanging out in a hunting position, you know, what was your experience as far as what you found them doing? I, I, I think some of it is obviously biased by the search image that you adopt. I like to arrogantly think I've got a pretty good search image because I've been doing it for a while and I, and I, um, so I target areas and places and times of day and climatic conditions that I know are going to be favorable for me to find snakes which may influence the behavior of those snakes. So when I say that, when I go out, I don't waste my time looking up in trees, catching snakes, and this is why road cruising is so is so useful. So a pristine habitat is a better environment than a road. But for you to bust your ass walking through 500 meters of thick vine forest looking for snakes, um, probably with a visibility either side of the line that you're work, walking of two or three metres is not going to be as efficient as in that same period of time driving 100 kilometres of road, so 100 k's or, say, 100 miles um, times uh, 40 or 50 metres, which is the width of the road, with perfectly open visibility on that road. And, of course, um, of course the road is, is not as good a habitat. As, as the pristine forest. But just 
just by sheer probability of chance that a snake's going to be hauling itself over it, that's why road cruising works so well. And so I adopt a similar principle when I look for green pythons. I um, I don't bother, you know, looking at... It depends what you're doing, but if I'm just... I, I need to find a snake tonight, that's my, that's my goal, then I will find a pretty good, like walked path, a trodden path that's fairly narrow. Um, so it's not like a big, uh, you know, a highway for cars or anything. It's a little hunting track or something. And I will walk down it pretty fast. And I won't bother searching anything really above two metres okay. above above my head. Um, sorry, if I look out to the side and I, I whip along pretty fast, you know, like, Almost, a, almost at a run, basically as fast as you can walk along a jungle track. And most people would go, "Oh, you're missing stuff." But I think if you have your search image down and you know that you can cover a lot of distance, then you're finding snakes at night within either on the ground or within the first meter of the ground in that hunting position. And so that, for me, has proven over the years the most successful way of finding snakes. Um, so it means that's what I see them doing a lot. Sure. But obviously we know from some telemetry studies that have been done that they do start moving between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. Then they'll set up there in the evening and they will set up their ambush position during that period, which means out of necessity they have to move. Oh. And so, yeah, I've probably found in my lifetime... 50 or 60 green pythons crossing roads. Or I've just, you know, and I've found maybe 10 or 20 just cruising through the bush um, or cruising through the trees or, you know. And I've I've found far fewer green pythons sitting in that that characteristic little turd shape um, up on a (laughs) <laughs> but it's probably because I'm not looking for them. And in those sure. in those occasions when I, as a kid mainly, but I had far more energy and motivation <laughs> running around in the bush during the day, um, yeah, I would find the odd green python, you know, awesomely curled up um, doing its little thing, maybe two metres off the ground or something. And it was such a rush. But... Given the amount of time I put in and effort I put in to try to find those one or two individuals, it didn't really pay off. And so I think based on I draw many of my conclusions from the work that David Wilson has done and just my general observations of a large number of animals that weren't tracked. But, yeah, they do spend the majority of their time just curled up during the day high up in the canopy or in the trees. Um, And then they come down between six and eight, and they set up ambush, um, sometimes on the ground, but mostly, you know, in the typical, you know, tail wrapped up and head down towards the ground in ambush. And um, and then between sort of six and eight in the morning, they head back up into the canopy. And that's, that's their gist. So, yeah, I think people that are finding them on the move are finding them during those... You know, serendipitous periods, those opportunistic or, um, you know, those those fairly time-limited periods where they are actually getting out and moving. Sure. If a snake is moving around during the day, in the middle of the day, then it's likely being disturbed or it's sick or, you know, not, not always. There's always exceptions to every rule, but I'm, I'm talking broad 
general rules. Right. Um, that's kind of how they how they function. It's so interesting to hear you say just what you just said because I'm applying that to our search for the Owen Pelly Python and you know we search for this thing for days without any luck and we were looking in the wrong spot. Um, we start and the the night that we found it, we started looking up into the trees. You know, because yeah. it's it's sort of like you're saying you have this idea in your in your mind of where the snake would be, and we kept we're looking in cracks and you know in this rock escarpments, and we're trying to just like peer in and see if we would see one in there, and you know uh, we didn't come across it, and then we started to talk about like uh, you know well what would this snake be doing, where would it be, how would it be, you know maybe our idea from the people that we've spoken to uh, is is not where we should be looking. And as soon as we started looking up, whether it was luck, whatever, <laughs> uh, I lost my phone on the, on, a, on, a, on the top of a rock escarpment and it led us back to that spot. And that's sort of how we came across it. And sure enough, there it was coming out of the cave, um, you know, out of a, 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 I'm assuming it was some type of cave because there's bats flying out of it. It goes into the tree it just sort of hung out there until it, it what it, it I mean, we thought it was feeding on um, bats because it just seemed to uh, just hang out in this tree and bats flying all around it. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy, but same same idea. Absolutely. And when you have, you know, when you have thousands of those little experiences, you don't need to follow the snake day to day to get a good idea of, oh, okay, you know, over time you build up an understanding of, of, of what they're doing, and I guess that's sort of what I've, I've done a bit with greens. But that's a cool story, man. Where, where I ask, where is it, Norlangi or the bear? Yeah. Or? Yep, Norlangi. Yep, Norlangi. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was <laughs> definitely uh, an exciting night for sure. You know, um, like I said, mm -hmm. we we weren't supposed to be there that night, and um, I lost my phone. Somebody found it. I mean, what are the chances of somebody finding your phone yeah. on the top of a rock escarpment in uh, the Northern Territory? Um, but sure enough, they did. So it led us back to that spot, so I could pick it up. And uh, yeah, there it was. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, That's really cool. I'm, I'm really envious. I've spent too long walking over those bloody rocks looking for that snake and never found. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah what a big snake too big thin huge you know it was it had to was be it, it was long was it yeah 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 really long um i swallowed many a grasshoppers uh trying to put a light on that so we could get a good picture of uh mm. <laughs> of it you know it's good protein it, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, I, I suspect for a predator like that, in a in a landscape like that, find those caves where there's prey. Find those trees that are fruiting where there's you know Teresian pigeons coming in. Um, that's where you'll find your own bellies, I suspect. Yeah, and then it sounds like sounds like you did. They're not going to bother just living in any bit of old escarpment where a, where a rock wallaby might hop once in a blue moon, they're going to hang out. They know the animals are hanging out, which probably moves, changes depending on the seasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, we went right before 
I, I guess they call it pre-wet season uh, build-up, uh, if you will. Um, but yeah, awesome. Um, I did. Uh, I was curious, real quick, um, just as far as um, did you make any observations as far as? Uh, well, my first question would be like when you found the snake. Did you just take the data and move on to the next spot, or did you kind of stay with that snake for to observe it for a couple of days? Or um, as soon as you as soon as you touch a snake, you um, you sort of bugger with its natural pattern, and it's just going to head off straight up into the top of the tree. Right. Um, and so, no, typically, typically, uh, no, I wouldn't okay. wouldn't hang around. You know, there'd be occasions where, um, you know, say in Aussie, I would find a snake and just leave it because I, I knew which individual it was or something, and I would go back and and just check on it, you know, every day, and just you know, in the same place. Oh, then it's moved moved over there, and you know, but not with not with all the thousands of animals. I've found. <laughs> yeah, just, still be uh, doing it, right? <laughs> exactly. It's typically just a just a you know, observe it for a little bit, figure out what it's doing, maybe spend sure. five minutes admiring it, but taking a couple of photographs if it's in a cool position. And then yeah, basically just capturing it and taking the data that you're you're allowed to take and and um, releasing it. Right, cool. The reason I asked that I was gonna ask if you had any uh thoughts on um as far as their feeding. Are they feeding you know, every night, uh, you know, and then during a certain time of the year and then they don't feed for an extended period of time. I mean, that's always been my thought with pythons in general. That they're yeah, not really... it, it, I, I think it is. I, you know, it's difficult to tell. Even if you radio track a snake, you don't necessarily know how many times they eat in a year. And it, again, it's something that is variable depending on the individual. But certainly, wet season is the time when all of these snakes. It doesn't and it doesn't need to be greens. It can be scrubs. It can be whatever carpets. Wet season in these um, places is when they're really ramping up their intake rates. It's when the prey are most abundant, or at least moving around the most. Um, it's when it's nice and hot, so they have quick digestion. It's when typically they're shut down in terms of their reproductive um, interest. And so when you get into the dry season, some of those cooler months, it takes a bit longer to, to digest stuff. It's a bit dry. The animals have, you know, they're not as, not moving around quite as much. And it's reproductive season. And so you're focusing more on girls or boys and not, um, and not on food. And so, yeah, I think they definitely do shut down. That being said, I've had a lot of, Keepers, one or two keepers say to me they thought that scrub pythons just wouldn't eat for long periods over the dry season. All of the animals I radio tracked that I'm obviously finding big lumps in their stomach sometimes, they all continued to feed to a, to a lesser degree, but they did continue to feed over those, those cooler months. Huh. I think just the fact that I found a fair number of green pythons continuing, you know, in hunting posture. Um, you know, behaviour can be a good proxy for food intake. Um, you go out in a night and you might find, like I said, 12 green pythons during the wet season. And it'd be nice. You know, that wouldn't be, that was the highest, but it wouldn't be uncommon to find five or seven or, you know, because 
when you really know your area and you know you've got your search imaging really well. And um, and they'd all be sitting down doing their hunting. Yet I can apply the exact same technique, um, all the areas that I know, etc., and I can go for a week without finding anything in the exact same place during the dry season. And so that should be telling us if the animals aren't hunting, they're obviously not going to be eating. Um, and I, and I, there's no evidence to suggest that they've switched to a different prey item or that they're hunting birds in the canopy or, or anything like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think they do just hugely shut down their their food intake during that dry, dry period. I, w- I wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I always think about this, and so given their um, activity levels and where you find them and, and what they do during the day and night and their seasonal you know behavior patterns around prey, given all these factors and and how you know they tend to behave, what um, obviously without having done any like blood analysis, what role do you think UVB plays in their um, their their life and their health benefits. Do you think they are exposed enough under natural sunlight to obtain that? And do you think that's crucial to them, or or do you have any sense of that at all? Um, yeah, I, I suspect in in much the same way that human beings require vitamin D, which we can get from the sun. These animals require sunlight for both that vitamin and for very other various other metabolic processes as well um they're obviously ectotherms so they rely on their environment to thermoregulate and their behavior to thermoregulate so they're going up and sitting in the sun um out of choice and so obviously that has a long-term effect over generations and generations um and so I suspect that yes, it's a, it plays a big role in in various things. I can't speak to what the benefits are or the sure. the, the costs of um, the costs of not giving them UV lighters. Um, but you know, people talk about the white the white spots and the white stripe, and right. it, absolutely that could be related to to that. Um, it could be to exposure in juveniles. Juveniles get a lot more sun. And often when you, you know, when a green python hatches of its Morelia viridis, you can see the white vertebral stripe really, really faintly. It's still yellow, but you can kind of see it on the hatchlings. Mm-hmm. And these, these animals grow up to adults and they have no stripe whatsoever. So it could be that, that UV is required at the juvenile stage for the white stripe and all the spots to manifest at the, in the adult stage. Something that would be so incredibly easy to, to test experimentally with a pretty simple design and a bit of time and a few animals. And I've, I've, I've talked to a hell of a lot of people through, you know, what the design would look like, and no one's ever really followed through. They've all just got bored over time. <laughs> um, yeah, but it'll be interesting to know. Um, but, it, yeah, I can't really answer that question because I, sure. I don't necessarily know what the costs and benefits of UE may be. Yeah. yeah, if they're if they're out basking in the sun, they're definitely getting all these rays that we are not providing them necessarily in captivity, or we've sort of adopted this like that's eh, kind of you know take it or leave it sort of thing. But if they're getting it and they're benefiting from it, you know maybe that 
could be, I mean, obviously we'd have to do the work, but I wouldn't be surprised if over generations you find that being linked to like the health and strength of neonates and just overall vitality of animals and longevity. Fertility rates, lots of stuff. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's one of those things. Is it uh, is it needed or is it you know? It, it seems like for especially for python keepers, we sort of like are just happy and content staying in our box and never pushing outside of that box and trying. You know, it, it seems like well, this works, so we'll just stay with this and not trying to push. Yeah, uh, yeah. husbandry farther, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that you guys have every opportunity, in my opinion, should be looking into because maybe maybe we think now we're at an optimum and that, yeah, our snakes live and we can reproduce them and we can have, train these designer morphs. But who knows? You, you shake a few things up, you learn a few new things and get some processes in place and maybe your snakes will live for twice as long, give you twice as many... Not twice as many eggs, but twice as many fertile eggs, fewer slugs, all this sorts of all this sort of thing. And but the importance, I think, with my, my nerdy science dad hat on, is um, <laughs> it just needs to be done in a fairly systematic way so that you're ruling out other influences. Sure. You know I mean? yeah. It's like people often go, oh, what the the vertebral stripe, the white stripe. What if it's the diet? What if it's the this? What if it's the UV? And they'll test them all at once, and they'll test them on two animals, and then try and draw a conclusion. You know, and it just needs to be done systematically, which makes it a little bit dry and a little bit slow. And but yeah. you know, if there's there's a desire to do that. I mean, that's how husbandry progresses, is sure. through husband, husbandry science. And yeah, yeah. I, you guys should go for it. I'd welcome that. <laughs> yeah, if somebody had, you know a large sample size of various individuals and just had everything as consistent as possible from setup to the UVB light that's being offered to the room and enclosures and just did, you know, consistent testing over an extended period of time, mm-hmm. you know, a few years, a few dozen animals or more. I mean, if somebody's already got a collection like that, all it is is just doing a little testing a couple times a year, I would think. So, yeah, exactly. I think I think the difficulty is often in the hobby, even though it's a hobby, there's still considerable investment. So there's a willingness to recoup some of that investment because it. I don't imagine it's cheap living in you know, New York State where it's cold with a, an electricity bill for your house when you've got a hundred snakes that you're you're heating. You know? <laughs> so it makes perfect sense that a hobbyist wants to make the most out of every animal and doesn't want to test some funky idea that some weird New Zealand slash Australian suggested when it might actually kill half the snakes and you won't remove them. <laughs> so I totally get it, but it would be cool to cool to find out because that's how we advance. Right, yeah, it's, well, it's if it saves money on vet bills, you know, and gives you a, a longer living animal, it sounds like a, a better long term, you know, benefit <laughs> if it were to prove out that way. Good way to look at it. Yeah. You know, I think the one cool thing about the the, the paper, just that from the hobby standpoint, is it may explain some of the uh, infertility that you see in various clutches uh, as mm. far as uh, species or subspecies crossing and maybe. Maybe all this time we thought it was, and I guess it just speaks to the point that you just said. We thought it was this, and you know, now that we're learning more, it may be something different. You know. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, that, that would make perfect sense. These things aren't just 
like minorly genetic di genetically divergent. I said this in the call in an interview the other day. Someone else about this, but what what's the what do we say about us and chimps? We're like one and a half percent divergent from a chimp. Right. Sure. And here, and we're you know obviously we're different species to a chimpanzee. And here you have two green snakes that sure they look identical, but they have between seven and eleven percent divergence. That's huge. Um, which is is huge. And so absolutely, you know, I don't I don't even there's no reason why I would know this, but but I don't know if you know I think I do know the answer, and it's no that chimps and humans are, you know, we don't produce viable offspring. Um, if we interbreed, I'm sure it's been done, um, <laughs> and and that's at one and a half percent divergence. So if you think about it for a sec, here we're trying to to breed animals that have up to eleven percent divergence, and wondering why we're getting infertility. Um, now, obviously, snakes, you know, you can breed a water python to a to a ball python. And right. so clearly these animals are far more plastic in their ability to, to produce offspring and interbreed among the human, you know, the species concepts. But we can all agree that, you know, ball pythons live in the same geographic area as chimpanzees um, and human beings from wherever live in a different spot, um, but so do green pythons live in a different spot. And so there's a hell of a lot of divergence in that in that intervening year over the, over the time that those things diverged. And so absolutely, I think, I think that we're seeing a lot of those issues because we've unknowingly been breeding two different species together. <laughs> right. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, I, I, think, I think Vladimir Odinchenko, who I'm sure you may know, he's, he was um, at Terraria, Indonesia, yeah. um, and doing the doing uh, breeding green pythons. He, I think, he'd already figured that out. I, I want to say, I want to say that's true. I've a vague memory, but I think he said, yeah, that when you're breeding, you know, BX to to the Arus, there they don't produce nearly as many viable offspring in the offspring are really weak and hard to get started on pinkies and all this sort of stuff. And he was, you know, by far the best green python breeder ever. Yeah, for sure. I guess the closing thing I would ask is, do you have, what's next for you? Do you have any projects coming up or anything you could speak on as far as uh, related to sort of more pet tradey stuff? Um, I'm doing a similar thing with the li the white-lipped pythons, the lyre ah, pythons. Ah. Um, <laughs> as you may know, that wolf Schleep, uh, who I don't know, but he he um, split a bunch of species. I think we have, I don't even know, seven species of lyre python now, according to yeah. a tape he wrote in 2008. Right. And, I, and some of them were split on... Um, uh, forgive me, Wolf, you're listening to this, but in my opinion, a fairly limited or factual, a limited sample size and, and what I would say are, um, are uh, not the most meaningful morphological characters um, gotcha. to differentiate some of those taxa. And so we've, we've done 
um, molecular work using these same high-powered techniques, next-generation sequencing of you know, mitochondrial and nuclear genes. And, yeah, at, at this stage, it doesn't look like all of those species are indeed valid. Um, and oh. so we'll, we'll be publishing that when we, again, get, get around to it. And then I'm also working slowly on, you know, Dave Barker and friends did some stuff on the amethystine complex, and obviously they they split out, you know, Tanimbar and Clastolepis and Tracea and things like that. Um, but there's still a big question mark of what is actually going on in New Guinea and, and even in Australia um, sure. with the scrub pythons. And so I actually team is a guy on the David Means got in touch and he sure. wanted to do, do some stuff and I was doing some stuff already and I've been collecting data from museums and obviously have all the all the genetic data. Um, and so, yeah, something similar may be in the pipeline. But keeping in mind that for me, given that I'm somewhat leading this until someone wants to take over, and I would love someone to, um, <laughs> uh, it's not my bread and butter. It doesn't put right. food food on the table for me and so it's a labor of love when i get the the downtime which becomes increasingly rare as you become older and older as i'm sure you know yes those good things uh yeah so true yeah so that's basically other than i'm still doing heaps of work on burmese pythons and reticulated pythons and monitor lizards and stuff all around but it's more related to skin trade and and so on not so much related to pets but in terms of pets and taxonomy i'm i'm working on the layer of the white lips and the and the scrubs that's awesome that's awesome that's really cool yeah the scrubs are one of those ones that uh yeah i would i mean here's a guess just a theory and i've always kind of thought this is that if you have two species of green pythons i would imagine you have at least two species of Scrub pythons in Papua New Guinea—that would be my yeah, thought. But it would make sense. I mean, they're a much more mobile animal, and they right. occur at high elevations too. So it makes sense that they might not have as much divergence as, um, say, the green pythons do, which don't right. move much at all. And, you know, um, but yeah, absolutely. I think with almost every single animal group, whether they be small rats or butterflies or fish or whatever, that north-south divide is pretty consistent. You're right. typically looking at two species, one one either side. But but when you get into this, using some of these genetic techniques, looking at the Vogelkop and then the Birdshead Peninsula there, and and even even Biak, I mean, there is some some interesting stuff going on. And even in Australia, we have a place called the the Black Mountain Corridor, yeah, which, which I'm sure you know about. Whereas, and you know, you probably hear that scrub pythons in Cape York are quite different to the ones down around Cairns and Innisfail and Tully and 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 that. And there may be something something to that. And I think I think actually we've done the molecular work, and I'm just regurgitating results. I already know, but um, yeah, I think that's what it shows. And so, you know, are those things different? Who knows? Yeah. It seems that uh, so I with scrub pythons we found one in um, I guess it would be what you consider gelatin and then one in Tully and yeah. the one from Tully just seemed that it wasn't as dark as it, they, they kind of looked a little bit different I mean I don't know if that obviously you know phenotype doesn't translate necessarily into different species or anything but 
That's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I gelatin is around the spot where that black mountain corridor is. Right. But typically, there's, there's three main things that phenotypically, or in terms of morphology and character, differentiate the Australian populations. And actually, the opposite of what you said, they're, they're darker <laughs> animals. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Right. <laughs> television. No. Um, so the, the, the southern animals are typically darker. Uh-huh. Uh, say the Cape York animals or the stuff to the north, which makes sense because it's colder and so on. Um, they're way more aggressive, and they're they're bigger. They're bigger animals. Right. You know, you do, I, I caught six hundred, six hundred or more, seven hundred maybe scrub pythons in my PhD sure. at the tip of Cape York, and the biggest one I caught in that big sample size was. Oh, I think I want to say uh, maybe four and a half, maybe four and a half or so meters. Oh, shit. But, but I, I found, you know, I've spent far less time down further south around Cairns. I just, you know, do a bit of herping when I drive in to fly out and need to stay an extra night because my plane didn't link up. I just go herping. And I found bigger animals than that, just, you know, off a sample of less than 20 animals, you know. Um, and, so, and, and generally, that's where you get some of those really monster specimens that turn up in the, the newspapers in Australia and so on. Gotcha. Okay. I'll have, to, I'll, I'll have to find the pictures and send them to you so you can check them out. And, you know, yeah, that'd be, cool. that'd be cool. I've only found two. I mean, obviously, it's, <laughs> it's nowhere near what you found, so <laughs> I... I, I got no room to speak, but they were definitely a cool snake to find in the wild for sure. I mean, wow, that was yeah. They're um, were they they're aggressive though. The one we found on Tully Road was not no very chill, um, super super low key, a lot smaller obviously than um, the one we found up by Gelatin. Um, that that one was was, I would say, at least a cup maybe a meter or two. Um, yeah, and uh, that one took a chunk out of Rob's leg. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, fun guy. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, it was well worth it for sure. So, very good, very good. Cool. Um, well, thank you, Daniel, for uh, coming on and uh, chatting with us about uh, about all things uh, green pythons and some other stuff. It was definitely awesome. Um, can't wait to see that paper on the white lips that will be uh interesting for sure and owen will be oh, yeah. super happy about that one. Oh yeah <laughs> owen's owen's chomping at the bit listening yeah. right now i'm sure he loves his white lips oh, so. yeah. cool cool um well no it's a it's a pleasure to speak to you guys thanks for the offer to have me on and we'll do it again in another 10 years or however long it's been <laughs> <laughs> yeah right on <laughs> all right man thank you so okay. much no pleasure guys take care all right. You too. See ya. Bye. There you go. Very cool. Very very cool. Uh, it's always good to uh, to talk to Daniel. Um, we were lucky enough to get to uh, chat with him way back at ICAS, and you know he was sort of presenting some of these, you know, th- I guess theories back then, but uh, you know about green pythons and. Me and Owen always joke about how people like kind of took that. <laughs> they kind of <laughs> they didn't really uh, 
take too well to it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but, uh, it's funny, you know, years later, here we are, and it's like, not only is it just, you know, a hypothesis in testing, it's it's beyond that now. It's, you know, just shy of accepted uh, taxonomy. I mean, it's obviously got to go through the approval with the, the various organizations, societies, and all that, but um, he has an, an insanely strong amount of... Uh, data to support it so i think i think it's only a matter of time before it changes and everyone's either going to get with it or you know take yeah, their man. pick up their toys and leave sort of deal <laughs> <laughs> yeah right on it's um, interesting though because like uh, it, i see where you guys struggle with like staying focused because now i'm like oh i remember when i had green tree pythons and i had this red jaya and i raise it up and it's great and then i had these others and i'm like no stop it stop it you have enough snakes don't go back down that hole yes yes man well you'll soon find that out uh good segue because you have a little announcement uh that uh you got going on Uh, yeah so um taking taking carpets and coffee and and pushing it into the next evolution we're gonna ditch the name ditch youtube for now and uh evolve it and mash it up into uh, a podcast uh, myself with Andy Rea, um, who's a good friend of mine out here in in California, and uh, I've been thinking about it for a long time. You know, I mean, I've been listening to you and Owen for years, and um, and then as this whole podcast uh, wave of of everything cross content, like everything from like Joe Rogan to Money Talk to comedians having. Um, podcasts and like storytelling like all these things it's pretty cool passive content and you know listening to gary v talk about how much the passive content consumption is exploding and and then just sort of always having this itch to like do more it just only seemed right so um the reptile room podcast will be starting uh 2020 we're trying to get some episodes recorded ahead of time and it'll be much much similar to this one um you know, obviously we're modeling it after the pros. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, we just wanted to, you know, instead of having, you know, information being shared in a text format, like on Facebook and whatnot, it's a little bit easier to get more context when you hear somebody speak about it, or you can get somebody to like verbally lay it out there and you get more tone and, and implication that way. And so it just translates better to people's understanding. It's, it's less likely to come off as harsh or sarcastic or rude or anything like that. And then people sure. actually sit there and absorb that content and they can do it while driving to work. They can do it while cleaning the snake room. They can do it, whatever. And it just kind of seems to be that the, you know, one of the main directions that this hobby growth is going is to have more passive content that people can learn and soak in and usher in new keepers or, you know, bring people into the fold a little bit more than may have been alienated from drama and whatnot on Facebook or anything like that. And I I just think there's so much room for it. So why the heck not? And Andy's a great guy and he's got a wife and three kids and he lives in the Bay Area and he's, you know, works a full-time job. So I think his perspective is, you know, very relatable for most people and i think it'd be fun so that's yeah, what man. we're doing <clears throat> that's awesome that's uh that's really cool i mean i'm it excites me to see more and more of these reptile podcasts pop up and you know uh i because it gives me more to listen to <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> just being selfish yeah. Sure, sure um yeah no it's good stuff um and uh yeah i think i, I don't know i i 
I, I'm curious to see your thoughts. Um, I find that uh, the podcast is way uh, it, it is a better format uh, for me, at least, than YouTube because it's like YouTube. You're kind of like talking to yourself. I think other than what um, um, Triple B TV does, where he does actual interviews, um, mm-hmm. it's more you know where that that. It's sort of like a, you know, sort of like what Rogan does, where it's kind of like a podcast and um, video at the same time, so to speak. Right. But, uh, I don't know. It's much easier, I find, to digest. Maybe it's because I drive a lot or whatever. You know what sure. I mean? To, to 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 do the audio, but. Yeah. Well, and I know some folks will put on YouTube on their phone and just like, you know, plug it into their car while they're driving. They'll just listen and not necessarily watch. And so as soon as I started hearing that, I started really questioning whether or not the video content was um, as valuable as I had been, you know, measuring it to be. And and is it worth, you know, all just that effort to sit there and talk to myself and have a chat and like, yeah, it benefits those people, but it seems rather closed circuit and it's just kind of limiting and not to say that there isn't you know benefit in video content but oh absolutely yeah for me when i want to watch video content it's you know i want to see somebody out in the field showing their research finding these animals or doing training sessions or working with animals or showing off how they build enclosures watching people talk is no different than listening to people talk to me so um, yeah I don't know. After doing carpets and coffee for so long, I still feel awkward in front of a camera. I'm like, <laughs> Let's just do the audio thing. I can record it. I can, you know, backlog episodes. We can still, you know, get really good information out there. Sure. There's clearly, you know, no uh, no ceiling to this. So why not do it that way? Just really take off. So. Cool, man. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, glad to hear it. Um, so when is the first – do you have a date for their first episode of when you're going to – We don't have a date yet. We're we're thinking we're going to try and shoot for, like, having something recorded and ready to drop, like, the first week of January. Um, okay. Ideally, we will get in some sort of rhythm and schedule where we can record and have uh, an episode released every other week, sort of get it, like, twice monthly and see how that goes. Um, okay. Ultimately, it's going to come down to our schedule because Andy's a busy guy. You know, he's got his wife and kids, his work, and, you know, he's got to be a family man on top of managing the snakes. And then my schedule can, you know, get crazy at the drop of a hat with with work and I don't have normal weekends. And so it's having some like flexibility in our game plan is is kind of going to be key to our success, I think. So being able to pre-record and and just sort of have a little bit of flexibility on when we release episodes will be good. Cool. Um, yeah, pre-recording, uh, I don't want to say it's made us a bit, I don't, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but, um, it's, 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 it's changed. Um, you know, like when we were doing the show live, it was like you, you, I I always looked at it as you didn't have a a choice on whether or not you could, change yeah. the day or whatever you know you have the guest booked or you have the the show booked in you've shared it on social media people are looking forward to seeing that and right you know, now that we've sort of pre-recorded the episode you have a little more well we have a little more flexibility you know like uh, the one day I, I think it was yeah it was last week uh, tuesday um we were supposed to have Daniel on and it didn't work out. And then I had such a bad day at work. I, I came home and I was, you know, I messaged Joe and, and I was just like, 
man, let's just do the show tomorrow with Ari because I'm just in such a foul mood. It'll just translate yeah. over. You know what I mean? It's, to be afforded that flexibility is, uh, has been great. But uh, Yeah, it's nice. I'm sure it probably takes a little bit of the pressure off your shoulders. And guess what? Your product that you're putting out is just as good, if not better, especially in the, the audio department. You guys have really been tinkering with it. And I don't know. I just see it as the natural evolution of your program. You know, you can't just do the same thing forever, but you like sort of can, but let it grow with the times, you know, sort of stay relevant and modern. So, you you know, you get new microphones or you get a new format or whatever it ends up being. It's just the next evolution of it as it goes. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's so much content out there and like, even just as, as you know, I, I see, I was going to ask, like, you're called the reptile, uh, reptile room, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, obviously you guys are going for a more broad, uh, type of topic base. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Cause Andy has a, a pretty eclectic, uh, collection of animals and I have a mildly diverse group. I wouldn't say as diverse as some, but you know, if we're going to put something out there that um, is going to be beneficial to people, I thought, you know, why not keep it pretty wide open as far as what we can incorporate? So, Yeah, we kind of, uh, with us, we kind of like locked ourselves into, you know, and it's funny, you go back and you listen to the different years, you can see how like either Owen or myself sort of uh, change directions for a bit. Sure. You know, we sort of like went off on this and then we sort of came back and, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously people listen to us for, and it was good to hear that we're Morelia Python radio. We're focused on carpets and it was good to hear Daniel say that Morelia will carpets will always be Morelia. So it's like, Oh, okay. Whew. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's good. Superior Morelia. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Don't you forget it, Justin Smith. That's right, Justin Smith. (laughs) I know you, you, but he goes on about his, uh, you know, magical green snakes on a stick and uh, uh, the superior ones. And, you know, okay. Yeah, he always says they're superior, yet he'll also tell you he has more in the freezer than in tubs. So I don't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that right, Jake? (laughs) I guess they live forever in the freezer. That's true. Mm. Um, no, yeah. that's a friendly, friendly dig at Justin. But uh, yeah, Justin. the nice thing about, you know, Morelia Python Radio and the name there is you, you sort of found your your calling and you set your home base and your foundation and you built it up around that. And then I'm, like, really glad that you guys don't shy away from, you know, other taxa and species and stuff because it's kind of nice um, saying, you know, in your name it says, like, hey, we know Morelia really well we are enthusiasts of all these other things because we bring on other guests and it's just like, Hey, we don't know all these other things as much as we know Morelia. So here's what we have our foundation in. Here's this other stuff that we're not as familiar with. And it kind of lends a relatable perspective to the listener right there. So I think it works in your favor. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's, it's funny. Like, you know, everybody has sort of their, you know, their, their little niche in this reptile podcast thing. And it's like, you could have an interview with the same person. I mean, you know, like I take us and from the ground up, we've interviewed a lot of the same people. Sure. Um, but the difference is, is like if we were interviewing, say, somebody that does colubrids, I would rely more on Owen for that. And it would be more of a, 
I would be approaching it more from the beginner lens, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I think it, I think it lends for different questions and and different 100%. topics. Whereas our listeners, you know, are probably very uh, familiar with, you know, either carpet pythons, Morelia, or Australian pythons, or just pythons in general. Whereas sure. they may uh, have those same questions. Um, about, you know, say, Kribos or something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, whereas, you know, from the ground up, when they're approaching, like, carpet pythons, and I hear them talk sometimes, and, and you know, they'll say, I don't know, about a line or a thing. And, you know, you can you can just hear that they're like, oh, I'm not really sure if this is the case. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. we're flipped. Uh, but the, the, the wording comes out differently. The understanding is different yes. across everybody. And you could have the same guest on four different um, podcasts and each interview would be entirely different. Yeah. Which is, yeah. which is awesome. And I, I think that's uh it makes for a good, yeah, we, you know, we got to like kind of get the podcast community kind of a little bit tighter. Cause you see these YouTube communities you know what I mean? You see them all gathered at shows and whatnot, you know. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, didn't they do that at uh, Tinley? They had the whole uh, – uh, they had like a whole booth that Dave Kaufman and a few other people did and all the YouTubers were there and it was kind of – it seemed like a good time and it, they all uh, seemed to get along and seemed very close. So I see what you're saying. Yeah, we could totally yeah. pull something off like that for sure. Yeah. It's – uh the Definitely. podcast games <laughs> uh, have yeah, like right? the Olympic games. Everybody gets together in one year and we have like an inflatable obstacle course and Iron Man and jello wrestling and beer drinking and flip right. cup and oh, Hobbit I'm sorry. tossing. <laughs> <laughs> I know Justin Absolutely. and Owen would be uh, very content with that. Uh, oh so, man, that'd so be who's, too funny. Who's the Hobbit in your thing? I mean, both of you guys are pretty. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So, so we're coming from the, uh, the ironic angle and we're just joking. Andy is a good friend of mine, but he's like this super tech savvy Latino and I'm this not tech savvy white guy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of funny in that angle. Um, if you know old stereotypes, which are horribly not PC, so we won't be playing that up much, but no, it's, uh, we're, we're both bald, so that's our angle. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. All <laughs> we're right. both bald. I can grow go. a beard. He can't. So there's that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I guess that's like me and Owen. Well, I could probably grow a beard, but, you know, not like Owen. He's he's a beard guy. I am not. I In Australia, it was like, oh, it bothers the shit out of me, man. I don't know how you guys do it. <laughs> and he's like, you just have to power through, man. It will get better. I promise. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, you get through that itchy stage. <laughs> I, don't I don't know if it's the bugs or what but this is yeah very, very uncomfortable no and we're and what really got me excited about asking andy to do it and when he was like kind of open-minded and then said you know eventually he's like yeah i think i'm down um is because like you and owen have this dynamic that i see a lot between andy and i like he keeps dumerals boas and rosy boas and tons of bull snakes and all these other things that i know about a little but i don't keep Um, you know, Owen has his colubrid itch and, and you're very, um, Australo, Australo Indo focused and, and Owen's kind of all over the map and (laughs) I'm sort of all over the map with a a heavy focus and Andy is just kind of all over the map, but in a different way. So I think it'll be, uh, we sort of cover a spectrum, you know, and then he's got, 
the kids at his place. So he has this approach with the kids and he's more sensitive to that um, viewpoint as well. And then, you know, I've got uh, a little bit of et cetera from my bullfrog to, you know, scorpions, tarantulas, tortoises, things like that, geckos, stuff at work. So zoo background. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll be able to really, be broad and diverse uh, every time we get together and chat. So I think it should should make for some uh, not stale, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inter- interesting content. Because that's the other thing. It, like you got to put in, and, and you know, you put in a ton of work making sure uh, it's new and fresh, and, and there's good stuff coming on, and new guests, and you you know you have uh, show plans and outlines and it's, you know, you made sure you've crossed your T's and dotted your I's so that it, it continues to be good. So I think with our diversity, we'll be able to make that work. Very, very cool. Yeah. The, you know, that's the one thing that, uh, me and, uh, you know, it's me and Owen always joke about it, but, um, I think that's, I lend that to the, the success, the success of, of, of NPR is just that dynamic is, uh, it's huge, you know, and it was funny during the episode, right? And I didn't send this, but I still have it sitting in my queue um, to, to message you. It's like, you know, like I kept messaging, messaging you because I'm so used to Owen's cues on when he's yeah. going to jump in for a question. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. I, I didn't want to cut you off. And I'm like, oh, did, was was Riley trying to ask the question there? Damn it. All right. We're, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, it's different. It's yeah. It's so weird how you just become so uh, in tune to that uh, to that other. Pro- I equate it to you. You would know this. It's like similar playing a band. You know, it's like, yeah. Like when you're jamming with somebody, there's certain cues that are given off that you just sort you sort of learn over time, and you know, yeah, somehow you, yeah, you, you just mesh. have an intuition about your your other your other guys involved, 100. Yeah, yeah. you just sort yeah. of naturalize together and just become this thing, this biological entity, and you just understand and sort of intuit what everybody's doing and thinking. Um, yeah, no, I remember when I first. Uh, found NPR in like 2013, 2014, um, which sounds very, very long ago when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> wow, like, that stopped me dead in my tracks. Yeah. When I first found some of, of the episodes and whatnot, listening to it, I found myself just going through and listening to every episode, not only because it was new content and it was stuff that I wasn't familiar with, but as soon as you, you know, get into one or two episodes, you listen to it all the way and you learn the, the dynamic that you two have, that actually becomes part of the experience. You know, people, that's why like, um, in TV shows and certain things, broadcasters and hosts become so well known is because the dynamic within there is honestly part of why people tune in because they like their perspective or it's funny or they just play well off one another. Like with radio hosts, there's a radio show that's local to me here and they're fantastic and they've been doing it for almost 30 years and they have a diehard fan base because they're hilarious and the dynamic just flows well together. And so I think you guys have, you know, after eight years, you guys have an insane dynamic and it's just awesome. Yeah, oh, I, I always joke he keeps me grounded. It's like I'm the dreamer, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, it's like this utopian of reptile world thing. And, like, oh, yeah. and it's like he just comes along and just pops the bubble. Like, what are you talking about, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, damn it. <laughs> okay, uh, you're right, yeah. Owen, you know? So. Yeah, it's funny, man. It's it's definitely part of why people look forward to NPR, I'm sure. So 
yeah, cool, 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 cool. Um, yeah, I don't know why we've never had Andy on. He kind of is like, uh, kind of like lays low on the radar. Um, yeah, he, you know, he's sort of involved in the in the jungle stuff online, but I think he's just too uh, humble for his that's own why. good. You know, like he's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I think he's just too humble for his own good. Like he doesn't believe that. Uh, well, I could I could be overstepping, and Andy, if you're listening to this, because I'm I'm finally getting him to pay attention to the podcast world. Okay. Because um, he's he's not an Apple guy, so he doesn't do the iTunes podcast stuff. And I was like, dude, you can listen to podcasts on other things. And he downloaded some app, and he's like, what? It's online here. And so he's been like <laughs> messaging me excited. I just listened to the Ari episode, and da 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 da. And he's like right. finally getting it, you know. Nice. Um, but I think he's just, he's too humble for his own good. He just, you know, he's got a family and everything that's his main focus. And so he doesn't like he, I could be assuming incorrectly, but I think he just doesn't quite have the the confidence and belief in himself to put himself out there in that way. But I know he wants to. So that was kind of why I wanted to ask him first, if he wanted to do this podcast with me, because I know he would see that there's good potential behind it and positive content to put out there and he doesn't have to put himself in front of a video camera or anything extra vulnerable it's just audio and it's you sure know, maybe a good way to ease into it and soon as the idea you know resonated with him i could see the excitement click and now he's just he's head over heels so i think he's a, a really smart guy and i think he has plenty to offer um you know he's been having some success with his doom roll bows lately um he's That's been cool amassing species. Dude, you're telling me. I keep looking at him. And I'm like, stop it, stop it, Riley. No, <laughs> get off this internet. Right, get out of here. Yeah. But um, yeah, he's. I think he has a lot to offer. He's got good perspective, and he's just a really humble guy. And it's it's rare when you find people that know how to say, um, and admit, you know, that they don't know something or that they're still figuring it out or that so far they've only failed at their endeavors because you still learn a ton from people's failures and your own failures, you learn what not to do or what didn't work or, you know, just anything like that. And it narrows your focus and it narrows your expertise down. And before you realize you've actually been, you know, quite knowledgeable in a species or something because you failed so many times. Um, And I'm not saying Andy's failed that stuff. I don't want anybody to think that he's still, you know, amassing his, his collection and raising things up and slow growing things. And he's been building, you know, a decent group of uh, jungles and bull snakes and rosies and doomerals and all of these things that I think he's going to, you know, one day walk into his snake room and it's going to hit him like a ton of bricks. Like, dang, I've been doing this for a while. I actually know, you know, a few things about these things. And I think, I think the more he puts himself out there, we'll see his confidence grow. And, and he's just a good guy. I think he has a lot to offer. So awesome. Awesome. Speaking of breeding, uh, you've been getting some action. Uh, I've noticed as of late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got the first rains of the season here. I'm still, this is only my second winter back up North, you know, cause in Santa Barbara, we just don't really have much seasonal variation and it was hard to get things cold this time of year. And I haven't dropped to the temperatures yet. Um, as far as hotspots go, but my ambient's definitely fluctuating and I'm seeing animals behave differently. And so I've been getting rain all week. So I, you know, started pairing things and, uh, the Darwins are cuddling, no confirmed locks. Um, Poplins are still figuring each other out. Although I'm trying a new male who seems to be terrified of this female. Uh, <laughs> he's literally like crapping himself every time I put him in with her. 
Really? Um, yeah, twice in a row. He's just taking a massive bowel movement in the corner. He's like <laughs> running <Jeez>. hid. Wow. <laughs> and she's not like exceptionally big, so I don't know what their uh, their issue is. But I wanted to try a darker male with her this year and see if I can start aiming for some really black pop ones. Nice. Um, and the tiger head exanic coastals getting cozy with a female, but the the rainbow bows are breeding like test bunnies. There, I don't even have to try with them anymore. It's almost not not even fair. Right. But um, and then yeah, the uh, that citrus tiger girl, she seems receptive. Um, that male's been all over her the last couple nights. So nice. Yeah, you'll yeah. probably produce them before I will. <laughs> I, don't I don't know, man. I, you know, I've said that before. I've counted my, you know, counted my eggs before they've hatched, and yeah. found myself kicking myself. So we'll see. You know, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, I just I made a mistake yesterday. I should have put some pairs together because we had sort of a, well, they said there was snow coming through, but it was more like sleet. Um, but. Mm. Uh, I should have uh, jumped on it, but uh, I've sort of pushed back my season a bit just because of the way that the, and I've talked about this before, but just the way that our weather fluctuates. I mean, it's sure. like 70 degrees one day or 60, 70 degrees, you know, and then like three days later, it's like, you know, 20, you know, so right. it's like, it's, it, I, I don't like those spikes because uh, yeah. the one year that that happened, it kind of like just... And it could be just a shitty year, because but everybody on the East Coast seemed to have a shitty year that year, and that it just fluctuated well, like that. It throws the animals off, you know. They're yeah. they're coming from regions where they don't really get those spikes of very consistent seasonality, if any. Um, yeah. And so that can definitely alter them. I mean, it it threw off uh, my tortoise um, when we moved from a, a pretty temperate climate to like cold and then warm it like he totally had this out of season brumation and it was really wild so snakes are definitely going to experience those changes and when you have off weather patterns it's definitely going to confuse them but they pay attention and you know i've been running a heater in my room um to keep it from getting too cold and even if i keep the the room warm and don't change it these animals are picking up on the shorter that like it, my, it's dark out here by five sunsets at like four forty-five here right now. Right. Um, so they're picking up on the short days and I don't know if you do this too, but like if you crack a window in there for a couple hours and let that like rain and cold air come in, they, they pick that up. So, Oh yeah. It's, I do that more in, in like uh September, October. Now that we're yeah. in November, it's just, kind of gets too cold but yeah right. absolutely you know it kind of sets them like oh okay this is starting to change you know yeah so. i used to sort of stick to like a, a very regimented schedule like okay stop feeding halloween okay start dropping hotspot temps december 1st and just had this like formula and i had mediocre success and then i was just like you know what i'm just going to pay attention to what the weather's doing you can't fight it like if you're changing the room and it doesn't match what's going on outside it's just wacky so yeah. All right, now now it's getting cold and raining here. Okay, now we're going to start letting things get cool and, and right. start rolling with it because I don't see any uh, foreseeable spikes and weird bounce backs anytime soon. So sure. uh, I'm going to say season's starting now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to follow the same thing. It's like uh, you follow the three holidays, you know, Halloween, right. Thanksgiving, and Christmas. So yep. Halloween is you stop feeding. Uh, Thanksgiving is you start dropping temps and Christmas, you start putting them together. It's kind of like the, 
yeah python 101 breeding uh formula if you will yeah uh, well and your animals they give you the behavior so you start putting together a pattern over time and after years you sort of develop a formula yeah um it's the same thing like with my rainbow bows i started by following dave collings methodology online and it's worked twice in a row and now i'm just kind of like meh I know what you guys do. Just, you know, you tell me when you're ready and throw them together and they're good. And it's, right. yeah, I've sort of come up with the same formula just a little bit earlier. So, right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thanks for uh, coming on and uh, get me through that episode. Uh, that was absolutely uh, much appreciated. Um, yeah, that was a blast. Yeah. And uh, where can people get in touch with you or, you know, pay attention to uh, the Reptile Room podcast? Where where would you send them to? So we are going to have the podcast up on all major platforms, you know, anything Android, iPhone, um, you know, all the iTunes stuff. We'll, we'll aim to have it up on everything uh, beginning of January. Um, and for now, you can uh, stay tuned for any updates on Facebook and Instagram. Just look us up under Reptile Room podcast. Um, we just put those accounts together um reptile room podcast at gmail.com for any uh email inquiries questions topic suggestions whatever you name it um once we get rolling we'll be putting out more information and announcing things as we go um and uh, as for myself personally just you know riley's reptiles on whatever it is instagram facebook i'm around so i'm not hard to get hold of for sure so cool yeah and as we get closer we'll have to uh to get you guys on and you can, uh, you know, tell us what's going on and how we can, you know, listen and all that kind of stuff and what you have lined up. So yeah, uh, we'll put Andy on the spot, make him real uncomfortable, and pop his podcast cherry. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we'll get him going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have faith he'll do just fine. Cool. All right. All right. And then for us, Murray Python Radio. Uh, dot net um, for myself anything eb morelia and owen is rogue reptiles.com and uh yeah i'm gonna have to like edit in him saying thank you for <laughs> morelia python radio good night because <laughs> we will it don't catch sound you all good. next week for another episode of morelia python radio